0: In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Look closely at verse 32. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. Any of you ever had any senior superlatives in school? Most likely to succeed. Most likely to get a job right out of high school. This guy... Most likely to provoke the Lord to anger more than everybody else who ever came before him. That's his superlative. Verse 34, in his days, Hile of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now verse one of chapter 17. Now Elisha, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, will you bless this? Will you anoint it? Father, will you allow me to say nothing more and nothing less than what you would have me say and help these good people to hear nothing more and nothing less than what you would have them hear? It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. He is risen. I hadn't done it in a little while, so some of you all remembered. I'm proud of you. Proud of you. The answer's in the question, though. We're gonna talk about Elijah for the next six or seven weeks. This will be sort of our series through the end of the summer. So, we're starting here in chapter 16 of 1 Kings, and we're going to work through um, his transition of power to Elisha, the prophet who came after Elijah, to take up the mantle. And Elijah is a fascinating character in the scriptures. For one thing, We even see that Elijah is given great honor in God's kingdom because in the book of Matthew at the mountain of transfiguration, we see that Elijah is one of the two figures in the New Testament that comes from the Old Testament as they stand and gaze upon Christ Jesus in his glorified form. Elijah and Moses representing the law and the prophets. The two greatest expressions of God's word and character in the Old Testament. The law as given by Moses and carried out by the Levites. And the prophets beginning with Elijah and running through Israel's broken history. Elijah performed at least seven signs that we know of in the text. Miraculous signs that we will talk about as we work through. But what I want to talk about this morning is a little more... Microcosmic. I want to zoom in on what is happening in this part of the text because one of the most fascinating things to me about Elijah is that there's no origin story. There is no origin story. He comes seemingly out of nowhere. You don't know that he exists. And then suddenly he's standing in the king's chambers to, to preach him a sermon that is 17 words in the Hebrew. And yet, in Elijah, what we see is one of the most powerful expressions of God's grace, God's mercy, God's conviction, and God's faithfulness to his people that we will see in all of the Old Testament. And part of that comes because of what we just read. Because the reason I read at the back of Chapter 16 is because there is no chapter 17 verse one without what leads up to it in chapter 16. The context of Elijah's ministry is not this wonderful moment when everything is going great. It's not David's rule or the beginning of Solomon's rule. It is the brokenness of Israel. It is the shattering of Israel. They have divided. They live in two separate nations now, the northern and the southern kingdom. This just happened shortly before Elijah comes onto the scene. They can't get along. Wickedness, sin, and brokenness have overrun Israel, and the frustrations of that have divided what God created and called out of slavery to be united. There is a word for the church even there. God has not called those of us who worship Jesus to be divided by flag, stripe, denominational lines, or the minutia of belief. Can I tell you something? Whether you love them because they are lovable or you just know them, if someone has knelt beside you before the cross of Christ and had the blood of Jesus Cleanse them of their sin. They are your brother or sister in Jesus. Whether they believe like you believe or believe like I believe in every bit of theology or doctrine does not change the fact that they are family. Come on, there are some of us who are gonna sit around some barbecues this weekend and we're going to look at people across the table who we deeply disagree with and don't even know that we like very much, but they're blood and so we eat the same burgers together. Family doesn't have to get along all the time to be family. Family. But family does have to to realize that we came from the same place and so we're still family. Israel was divided when God was the one who had united them. And while we talk about texts that have to do with separation and divorce in terms of marriage, we don't often enough talk about those same texts in terms of what the church is supposed to be. Because the technical term that God uses is that which I brought together, let no one tear apart. And can I tell you what he's brought together at the cross, the reconciliation of those who were far away and those who were near, bringing them together in himself, he asks us not to tear that apart either. And one of the reasons that we are weakened is because we've allowed the world to rip us apart over things that don't matter nearly as much as we think they do. You have not been called to hate people who have knelt at the cross. You've been called to love them even if they're frustrating. And can we just get an amen, sometimes they're frustrating. Sometimes I'm frustrating. Can I just warn you? I know that none of you have ever disagreed with anything I've said over the hours and hours of sermons that I've preached since I've been here. None of you, you have been on board with every bit of it. Can I just tell you and warn you, there will come a moment when I'm probably going to say something that you're not going to love quite as much as everything else in the catalog of words that I have used. Can I just tell you, God has asked you to love me anyway. Thank you for that, Helen. (laughs) In a divided Israel, and in a place where God's will for his people had been shattered by evil and wicked kings and rulers, Elijah shows up. The word of God comes into the midst of the brokenness because God is not rejecting brokenness. God is seeking to redeem Hmm. brokenness. Okay, you need to hear me. See, this is the beauty of the hope that we have. It is not that God looks at the world in its brokenness and says, I've got to destroy you and do away with you. It's that he comes with prophetic demonstration and words of grace and hope and says, I want to reunite you and raise you to new life. That's why Elijah is sent with a word from God of repentance. Because repentance isn't about destruction. Repentance is about life. If we continue to walk in the direction of death, and never turn around and move in the direction of life, then God looks at us and says, I've got to do something to stand in your way. I told you Wednesday night, as Saul was chasing all of the lost donkeys in 1 Samuel chapter 9, it's as if God kept getting in his way and he couldn't see what he actually needed to see, and so God kept standing in his way. He couldn't find the donkeys he was searching for, and so eventually he finds the prophet who was looking for him. See, at some point, God might not let you have the things that you want. He might stand in your way and say, turn around, because you're headed in a direction that has nothing to do with life. This is Elijah's call. Can I tell you, this is the church's call as well. Not to condemn the world, but to pick up the mantle of Jesus. If we are the body of Christ, and Jesus said in John three, that he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, then the message of the church to the world is not condemnation, but salvation through repentance, through faith, by grace. See, this is, this is the difference. We get angry with the world. It's broken, it's ugly, it's awful, the leaders are evil. And so God says, exactly, and I've sent you as a light into darkness. I've sent you with a word in a place of muted prophecy. I've sent you with hope in a place of hopelessness and salvation in a place of sorrow. I have not called you to simply tell the world that they are dying, but to tell them that they don't have to. And Elijah comes into the midst of Israel's brokenness with a word of hope, with a word of grace through repentance. I'll move on because none of that's in my notes. There's three things I want to say this morning to you about this text, and and so we'll we'll sort of work our way through the ideas here based on these three flag posts. First things first. There is a unique power that can flow through your life when you choose to be what you are, where you are. There is a unique power that can flow through your life when you choose to be what you are, where you are. This is why I talked about the context of Israel right here. Elijah did not get called into a place that was easy. Elijah got called into a place that was broken and evil. Rarely does God call his people into places that are easy. Frequently he calls us into places that are evil. This is because this is God's call upon our lives. I hope that you have an easy time worshiping in this house. Because when you step out into spaces where worship is not gathered and organized, you will find yourself in spaces that are much more difficult to worship in. And that's exactly where God has called you to be. See, so Elijah shows up, and, and there's this really neat thing about his name. Can I, and I'll, I'll read this quote from Os Guinness, who was a Christian thinker, really smart guy. Um, he, he says this. He says, the problem with Christians in America is not that Christians are not where they should be. The problem is that they are not what they should be right where they are. He says that we're not in the wrong place in a broken society, in a broken culture, where identity is a mess, where we are painfully aware of all that is wrong with us, he says that's not the wrong place for us to be. It's actually the perfect place for us to be if we are willing to be what we have been made to be by Christ. See, if we choose to stop wishing for escape and instead adopt a mindset of faithfulness, we'll find out that in the places of brokenness and evil, we find our true exilic home Peter, in, his, in the introduction to his letter, he, he speaks to the scattered ones, to the pilgrims and sojourners who have been moved out from the center point of Jerusalem, out into the far reaches of the world, and he speaks to them as if they belong there. Not because you belong in an evil world forever, but because you belong in a broken world for now. How else will they see the good news How else will they celebrate the feet of those who bring the hope of the gospel from the mountains? How else will the world know the grace of God if those who have been touched and kissed by the grace of God never walk into the places where there is nothing but isolation, brokenness, and evil? There is a unique power that flows into your life and through your life when you choose to be what you are, where you are. The church is called into a world filled up with imperfect and evil leaders. And please don't just think of America. You look at Ahab, 22 years. The most evil leader in all of Israel's history up to that time, 22 years. You wanna talk about people talking for term limits? We gripe over four years of one guy and four years of the next one. 22 years! evil, wickedness, brokenness. And yet God does not say, I'm going to eliminate you. God says, I'm going to speak with you. Hmm. How amazing is it when the God, whose very character is the standard of righteousness, is more merciful and gracious to the world than his own people Was this not what Jesus did in John 8 as the Pharisees and scribes came with the rocks to chuck at that woman who was thrown in front of them, carried out of a bed of adultery? Was it not Jesus who said, you guys are trying to be harsher on her than God himself is. So why don't you try aiming the rocks at yourself first? See, God is more merciful oftentimes than we are. And that's because God is looking for the salvation of the world, not the destruction and condemnation of it. And Elijah is called into this place. Man, he's a prophet of fire. There's this Scottish preacher named Alexander White who said, the prophet Elijah towers like a mountain above all other prophets. And I love this line. He says, he was a Mount Sinai of a man with a heart like a thunderstorm. If you guys ever wanted to eulogize me when I pass away from lack of sleep in in six or seven hours... I would love it if you would just inscribe on my tombstone, he had a heart like a thunderstorm. Like there's something beautiful about that, right? That Elijah steps onto the scene as a man who did not allow the brokenness of the culture to mute the passion of his heart. And so he stepped into the world of sin and evil. And said, I still believe in righteousness, and I still believe in holiness, and I still believe in a God who heals, and I still believe in a God who raises the dead, and I still believe in a God who provides food for the hungry, and I still believe in a God who speaks truth to power, even when power is evil. I still believe in that God because I've been talking with him for quite some time on the other side of the river. Church, you need to know that you've been called to this moment, for this moment, on purpose, because you are who you are. Not because you were called to a different era. You were not called to walk this earth 300 years ago. If you were, then you would have been here then. God looked at you and said, you are perfect for the moment that you were in. You are exactly who I need to be in this moment. You are who I have called for this moment. Your unique gifts, your talents, your abilities, your word, the way that your mind and your heart works. I designed you specifically for this moment. Don't start thinking, God, you put me in the wrong time. Everything's broken around me. That's why he puts you there. Elijah's name means my God is Yahweh. Eli-yah are the the two words that make up Elijah's name. And one of those beautiful things about his name and what that says about it, because that's the only thing we get, right, in the beginning. We don't know at all where he comes from or what he's doing, but we know that his name says now Elijah, the Tishvite. Elijah, my God is Yahweh. Yahweh is the name that God revealed to Moses about 400 years before Elijah came onto the scene. Yahweh is not just, so there are different names for God. And then so the word Elohim, which is God here, is the seat. That's the seat of power. That's the seat of Godhood. That is the office of God, Elohim. But he says that my God is not just God. My God is not just the one who inhabits a chair. My God is the personal God who revealed himself as Yahweh. I want you to hear me, and let me get to my notes because I don't want to skip over something that I believe I need to say. In a world that truly seeks to customize and redefine God, That's what's happening, you realize that, right? The brokenness of the world is rooted in the redefinition of God's word and the customization of God's presence. We love to customize things, don't we? Burger King taught us that. You can have it your way. Now, let's be honest. Even if you ask for it your way, you only get it your way about 70% of the time. But they advertise and say, you can have it your way. You can do it your way. If you only want a bun with a bunch of pickles stacked on it, we'll make it up for you and send it through that window. You can eat that mess all the way home if you want to, but I don't understand why you would. I don't know why that came to my mind. But we live in a world that believes in customization. Trim levels and packages on vehicles, houses that you build yourself and say, we want this wall here, we want this wall here, we want this room here, we want a mudroom, we want the washer and dryer on this side of the house, we want the kitchen over here, even though we will never use it because we're so busy working to afford the house that we've now built. We love customization. And there's nothing wrong with... Having things the way that you want things up to a point. There is a huge problem when we as a culture, society, nation, and world start to look at the way God has told us to be and the way God has told us is correct. And we want to customize that. See, there is no redefinition of the word of God and there is no customizing of the presence of God because God is who he is yesterday, today, and forever. And so when Elijah comes in and he says, my God is Yahweh. He's not saying my God is just a God, my God is something that's above everything else. He's saying, I know the personal nature of God. I have spent enough time with him to know who he actually is, and I'm not here to customize him to fit your rule, Ahab, and I'm not here to adjust his word so that Israel can be right even though they are wrong. I have showed up to tell you that there is still a unique and personal God. There is still a Lord who has an identity. There is still a God whose word is still secure and whose hope is still found in that word, and in our world, the church desperately needs to become Elijah's because we have a lot of people whose God is God, but but we have very few people whose God is Yahweh. Elijah's God was knowable, and Elijah's God was known. Elijah's God had a name. He was unique and specific. He was who he was, or as he said of himself, I am who I am, Yahweh. Would you say that out loud? Yahweh. Yahweh. That is the personal name of God. I am Kilgore by family name. I am Christian by the identity that my parents gave me at some point. I don't know if it was in the hospital, before, I don't know, I've never asked. You, if you say Kilgore, any number of people could answer. But if you say Christian Kilgore, then I answer. And if you say Christian with a K, then I'll know that there's probably no other human being on earth that's going to answer you other than me. Thank you, Mother and Father. There's a uniqueness to me because of the name that I've been given, not just the name that I had. And there's a uniqueness to God, not just because of the chair that he sits in, but because of the identity and character of the creator. And your God, not just Elijah's, but your God is not just a God. Your God is Yahweh. Your God is not just a God. He's not an impersonal force and He's not an ethic creating myth. Your God is Yahweh. And can I tell you, if there was ever a question in your minds about this, we need only be reminded that centuries later, your God would actually give his name in a way that nobody had ever known, and in Bethlehem, they would call his name because the angels told them to Jesus. See, your God is not just Yahweh uniquely. Your God is Jesus, who is also Yahweh, who is also the spirit of God that is in this space this morning. Your God is Jesus. That means that there is a unique specificity to the God that you carry out of this place that walks With you in your heart and in your mind, in your character, your God is Jesus. He is not a nebulous sky fairy. He is not an old man giving out candy to his grandkids. He is Jesus Christ, Lord of glory, bright and morning star, rose of Sharon, balm of Gilead, the one who hung on a cross, the one who died for your sins, the specific flesh, being body and mind, who rose from the grave with himself, taking death hostage to say life will overrun it. your God is Jesus. When you walk out into the world, your God is not a chair, it is not an elevated throne, it is Jesus. Your God is a specific and unique personal being who knows you, who saw you, who believes that you can be whole again, who will not be defeated in battle over your life. Your God is Jesus. It matters. It matters that we know. That if we choose to be who we are, people whose God is Yahweh, whose God is Jesus, then there is a unique power that flows through our lives into the world because then we are being what we are, where we are. There's more I could say, but I'm going to move on. Second, there's two things we see, I believe, that will give us sustaining strength as we walk through the brokenness of this world. And at times the brokenness of your own life. There's two things, I'll I'll, I'll give them to you here and then I'll I'll talk through them. First of all, to know that God is never unaware. And second, to know that God is always calling. Two things that will give you sustaining strength as you walk through the brokenness of your world is to know that God is never unaware and that God is always calling. You see this, and I'm, I'm going back to this because I believe the context matters here. We're going to move away from this context in the weeks to come, but I wanted to drill deeply into this idea that it was a wicked and evil and broken world that Elijah was sent into, not a whole beautiful and and, smooth running world. Elijah came into a world where Ahab had built a temple and an altar to an idolatrous God. He had married a woman whose father's name contained the name of Baal in it. In fact, you read that last verse in chapter 16 says there's this guy named Hiel who went back to Jericho that Joshua had defeated. There was a curse laid upon Jericho. If you go back into the book of Joshua, you'll see it says anybody who reestablishes the gates of this city, they will lose their child. Well, he built the walls, lost his firstborn. He built the gates and lost his secondborn. He said, I don't care. This is the tone and tenor of the world they live in. Can I tell you something? We still live in a world that deeply discounts the lives of our generations and our children. Let the Supreme Court say what it is. You've read the arguments. You've seen the people who are protesting. Life is still under attack in our nation regardless of what happened in a courtroom somewhere. We want to rebuild things that God destroyed, that God set us free from, that God overcame. We want to build those things back because it looks good on us at the expense of our children. Can I tell you, it happens in the church too. Man, we want to rebuild things that God set us free from in the church. Legalism and liberalism. The two sides of the coin. God said, you can't do whatever you want to do. You do what I say. And you can't levy heavy weights on people and telling them that I've told them to do things I didn't actually tell them to do. Both sides are in ditches. He said, I destroyed those Jerichos. I let those walls fall by the cross. Don't rebuild either one. Because you will rebuild those gates at the expense of the generations coming after you. Liberalism and legalism. Hyperconservatism and hyperliberalism will always, will all hear my, hear my voice, will always hamstring the ability of the church to raise up a generation to follow those who are going on before. Hmm. Your silence means that I hit something. That's all right. Let me let me hammer it right here and I'm, I'm getting close to done. That was a lie, Lord forgive me. When we tell the world that it doesn't matter what they do, when we tell our children it doesn't matter what you do, just love Jesus and sing songs, that generation will lose respect for God, and we don't follow people we don't respect. But on the other side, if you lay heavy weights on a generation And tell them, you've got to look this way, dress this way. This is the kind of music you want to play. These are the rules that we have. when I was a kid 60 years ago. And these are the rules you're going to live by right now. If you lay weights on them that God himself didn't lay on, then they will escape your church. See, either they disrespect it or they run from it. When we try to reassemble the walls that God destroyed, people don't want to stay. Because that's not God. But when we lean into what he has brought victory to in our lives, suddenly we find out that there is this sweet aroma that draws prodigals back home because the table is set with grace. We find out that there is hope even under the burden of repentance and rules because those rules lead to life and not to death. See, this is what happens in an immoral and evil and wicked culture. And that can be the nation or the church. We try to rebuild things that God destroyed and we find out that there's consequences to rebuilding what God cast down. Well, I don't say it very often, but that was good preaching. See, God sees the evil in Israel. He is never unaware of your brokenness or the brokenness of the world that you live in. It's the first thing that sustains us to know that God is never ignoring what's going on in the world around you or in the world in your heart. He sees. Some of you smile in here, but I know when you go home, you argue and you fight. Your kids walk into these spaces and we shake hands with them, and they're kind of quiet but in places away from this space. There's struggle and there's battle. Can I just tell you something? The stress and frustration that's created in those moments, God sees it. He's not unaware of what you're going through. Jesus knows right where you are. And he's sending his word into that place. He's not waiting on you to get to the places that are smooth and easy and harmonious. He's sending his Elijah's, his word, his repentance, his hope into the very broken places where you actually are. He's sending you into the places of brokenness that are actually in the world. God's not waiting on the world to get better to send you. He's sending you now. And one of the things that sustains us is knowing that he is aware, right? knowing that he is aware. I think there's this deep temptation when we cry out in the night, when things are difficult, when things are tough, to start asking, hey, where are you, God? Start to doubt his presence, doubt his existence, even, some of you. If you've never asked those questions, I'm glad, I'm grateful for you. But also, I think there are some valleys that we're gonna go through that are gonna force us to start asking some of those questions. You're going to look around you at a world that is deeply broken, and you're going to think, how in the world could God ever still be in heaven? How could he ever be actually who he is if this is still going on? And I'm just here to tell you, he sees. He's aware. He knows your fear. He knows your struggle. It is funny to me that it's almost exclusively in the moments of confusion, pain, frustration, or difficulty that we are tempted to ask, God, are you even real? God, where are you? God is everything I've believed a lot. Like, when when some of y'all, you know, I don't know, you get a promotion at work, you get a new car for a decent deal, can I just say this out loud? Some of you hit for a four-digit winner on a scratch-off card. Like, ain't nobody getting back in the car, looking at that cash money that they handed you over the counter, thinking, God, where are you? Oh, God. God, how'd these thousands get in my hands? We're not asking those questions when things go right. We're asking those questions when things go wrong. And I'm just here to declare over you, and the example of Elijah tells us, he sees, he's aware, he's never distant from the brokenness of his people or the brokenness of the world that his people are in. He sees you, and he's calling you. That's the second thing, he's calling us. In fact, his first answer seems to be calling. So sometimes God will answer us through his word, through his spirit. But a lot of times he answers us through people. And he answers the world through people. It's the way that God loves to work. So I want you to say this. Say this out loud. Say, I am called. I am chosen for this moment. You are God's calling into the brokenness of the world. Jesus already showed up. And he reascended, sent his Holy Spirit down and gave gifts to men, took captivity captive, Ephesians tells us, so that we, his people, would form a body that could walk in the world like Jesus walked in the world. This is what Ephesians three and four really work itself into. Which means that not only does God see the brokenness of the world and brokenness of your life, but he's called you to walk into the brokenness of the world, and I just want you to hear this, he's called other people to walk into the brokenness of your life too. As frustrating as it might be, God might actually use somebody who you know to speak truth into your life that you don't know. Now, y'all bristle at that because you don't want anybody to know your business and you don't want anybody to speak into you as if they know more about you than you do. But can I just tell you, God calls people alongside of you in community to help refine your life and redeem your brokenness, to help bring you out of dark places by speaking light into those very places. The community of the church is not just a group of people who sing songs together. The community of the church is the working body of Christ that connects with one another, that speaks life into one another, that speaks conviction into one another, that speaks repentance into one another. We are supposed to be those people who are rubbing up against each other and knocking off the burrs and the edges. This is what we've been called to be so that we can walk into the world and do the same thing in the brokenness of the world. Some of y'all don't want that. Some of you don't want anybody coming up to you saying, hey, I've been praying, God revealed this, God showed me this about you, take it or leave it. You're gonna look at them and think, well, why don't you stay out of my business? Hey, why don't you clock in on Monday? Sunday's your day off. You don't have to tell me a thing. And all along, it's God's gift and mercy to you that they would come to you and say, listen, I really believe God has this for you if you would lay this down. See, until the church truly believes that people can speak truth into their life that's actually supposed to result in life change, then we will be an anemic and immature organization instead of a growing and vibrant body. I'll ask you this question. I'll move on because you're obviously upset with me. (laughs) Who have you given hunting license to in your life? Have you given anyone have you literally given anyone on earth the right to look you in the eye and say you're wrong and you need to change? Most of us haven't. Most of us don't. Because most of us would rather rather be happy and wrong than free and right. We like comfort more than we like redemption. I'm just here to tell you, The next stage of growth in your life out of the brokenness you're in and into effectiveness that you've never known might just be you finding that person who God has led into your life. Can I just tell you, don't give everybody license to your land. Everybody ain't got a word for you, okay? Now they might think they do, but they don't. As your pastor, let me just take that pressure off you. If 40 people tell you 40 different things, 39 of them are wrong. 40 of them might be wrong but at least 39, but as you walk through this life, you need to build relationships in a gospel-centered way so that you have people in your life who you've given that card and said, if you see it in me, I want you to hunt it down. I want you to shoot it. I want you to cut it out. I need you to tell me about it because I don't want to walk or live in this kind of brokenness any longer than I absolutely have to. As soon as we're humble enough to say you can do that, there's this beautiful comfort that comes from the effectiveness that we actually gain in the kingdom of heaven. So, I'll, I'll stop there. Stop looking at me like that, finally. And this is really where the title of the sermon comes from. Look at 17.1, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the, Lord of, as the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So I told you, there's a unique power that can flow through your life when you choose to be what you are, where you are. And there's a couple things that give us the sustaining strength to walk through the brokenness of the world. That is to know that God is never unaware. He always sees. And then also to know that God is always calling and choosing. But the story of Elijah begins here in such a powerful and profound way because of this. Look what Elijah says here in this verse. I think it's so powerful as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Look at these four words. Before whom I stand. Elijah arrives out of seemingly nowhere to stand in front of one person to preach a 17 word sermon that will equal a three and a half year drought. That's power, that's power. And the way that we understand that Elijah walks in this kind of power is because he has stood before the living God. It is because Elijah has chosen to live in the presence of God in a place of fervent prayer. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Turn to James chapter 5. Or if you just want to write it down in your Bible there, if if that's what you do. Verses 17 and 18. We read about Elijah again in the New Testament. Here's James, the brother of Jesus' exposition of this particular event in 1 Kings. He says in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Get a hold of that now. He is not different than you. Tempted, tried, has his weaknesses, has his strengths. He is like you. Say it out loud. He's like me. You're going to doubt that because seven miracles later, standing in front of a king, calling a drought for three and a half years, you're going to think, I can't do any of that. Can I tell you, you can. You absolutely can. How? He prayed fervently. Everything else after that statement is extra. Everything else after that statement is extra. He prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Look at verse 18, then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Come back to 17.1 and look at this, this is fascinating. This sermon he preaches, as the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, look, except by my word. I love this expression. I love that Elijah says, I've come out of the presence of God to tell you what God's heart is, but also I have so absorbed the heart of God that I know when his heart is going to change. See, this isn't just Elijah praying for the drought. This is Elijah telling Ahab, i know when israel has reformed itself enough i'm the one who gets to speak the rain back over the nation god has given me the privilege and the responsibility to hold the power of heaven in my words and this is what the church has been called to as well can i just tell you friends there is a power when you start to do things in the presence of god when you start to adopt a posture of presence when you own that identity of a person who sits at the table of jesus when that is your passion you stop being anemic in the words that you speak and you start speaking with power into places that you didn't dream you could this is one of the most beautiful things in this text is that elijah says elijah says i don't only stop the rain but god has given me permission to restart it as well hmm Nothing of power ever comes from a shallow place. Want you to catch that and write that down. If you got a sharpie, put it on the inside of your arm. Nothing of power ever comes from a shallow place. Your words and my words contain no power when they come from shallow places. The reason that Elijah could say the rain won't come is because he had spent seasons on the other side of the river in the wilderness in God's presence in fervent prayer that's why see this wasn't magic and it wasn't just God saying it's time Elijah had the opportunity to speak drought and then to speak flood because he'd spent enough time in the presence of God that his words contained power let me meddle for a minute we have more than enough words The church has more than enough words. We have clever ways of saying things. I got a thousand stories in files all over my office and computer. I have things that I can say that are funny. You have things that you can say that are profound. We all have ways that we memorize scriptures. Man, we can launch out attacks from the Bible at people who say things we don't agree with. We have plenty of words. And the problem with The problem with our churches and our culture is not that we don't have the right things to say, it's that we don't have the groundswell force of power behind them because we have not spent time in the place of prayer. Words without power are virtually meaningless. But words that emerge out of a place of depth have the kind of power that can change anything. Can I just tell you, and I'm not here to throw stones at you at all, but I just want you to hear me. You've been praying for those prodigal kids of yours? Can I tell you something? Keep praying. Because in the place of fervent prayer, what's going to happen is not just that God's going to bring them back because God miraculously brings them back. Can I tell you, as you've spent time in the presence of God, praying over those people, praying over those loved ones, praying over those who you seek so much, want to see them back in the presence of God, can I tell you, God's going to give you the opportunity to speak at some point, and you've spent enough time in his presence that what you speak isn't going to be hollow or vapid, it's going to have weight and density, it's going to have the power of miracle, and it's going to impact their hearts and their minds in a way that only God's word could. And the reason it's going to is because you've spent enough time in the presence of God that his word becomes your word, that his mind becomes your mind, that his heart becomes your heart. And so what you speak is not just you speaking, it's him speaking into the world. The power of God comes from the deep places of intimacy with his presence. Nothing shallow is ever powerful. You familiar with the expression, an inch deep and a mile wide? We use that. That comes from the 1880s, I believe. I actually wrote this down because, like, 1889. Edgar Nye was an American journalist and a humorist as well. And he coined that phrase after making it to a place called the Platte River. P-L-A-T-T-E. The Platte River. He got there, and the river at first looked like this really wide thoroughfare. It was a part of the Missouri River Basin, or Missouri River System, excuse me. And it looked like the kind of place where you could really run freight through and have another access point to send stuff by ship into places that stuff couldn't get. That's right up until you stepped into the Platte River, in which, in case you found out that it was about yay deep, it was muddy bottomed, and it just looked real good on the surface, but it had no depth to it. And so it was useless. It was useless. You couldn't walk across it because it was too spongy and muddy on the bottom, and you couldn't sail across it because it was too shallow, but man, it looked really good because it was about a mile wide. And so he coined the phrase that this was, and let me, there's this one expression he used in his writings. I love this. He says that the Platte River had a very large circulation but very little influence. Dear God, is that not who we are? We've posted stuff on social media for years now. We have said that Jesus saves. We posted our cute pictures of the resurrection around Easter time and we posted our nativity scenes at Christmas. We have told people that we know, hey, we go to church and we love Jesus. Hey, He'll save you too. And all of these things are true. It is not that our influence in terms of how many people have heard it has been compromised. It's that the power of what we say doesn't have the force behind it to actually bring life change because we are a people who have to be forced into prayer instead of drawn into it by the promised hope of power. Maybe not the sermon you were expecting on July 4th weekend. But can I just give you the carrot instead of the stick? What that means is this, Elijah, a man just like us, gives us the great hope that as we spend time in the presence of our Lord and Savior, that suddenly our words don't have to be empty or vapid. Suddenly when you walk into a space of brokenness, into a king's chamber, or into the courtroom of your own home, you can speak the words of life, and suddenly things actually start to happen. When you walk into hospital rooms with loved ones, after you've come out of the closet of prayer, after you've come out of the place of brokenness, no longer are you just offering platitudes or quoting verses you memorized, but you're speaking prophecy into the place of death and brokenness. See, that's the promise that we have is that Elijah was no different than you and he's no different than me outside of the fact that he was willing to spend time in the wilderness in prayer, in the presence of the living God so that when he spoke, things actually started to take place. You have that same promise hanging over your head. That's why James tells us what he tells us in chapter five. So there's this thing that I had thought of last, earlier this week, or it's last week, I guess, Sunday's first day of the week. Tuesday, maybe? after I'd walked through some of this in my mind, if you look at the story of Jesus and whoever's gonna play, you can come play. It's not even 11.30 yet. (laughs) Jesus is baptized in Matthew chapter three. He goes down to the river and John looks at him and says, I'm not the one who needs to be baptizing you. I'm not even worthy to fix your sandals, man. And Jesus says, you're exactly the one who was called to this moment. You see, once again, in the brokenness of the world, when the vipers of religion were on the shoreline, God called someone to make straight a path God called John into that place and said, you will be the one. You'll be a voice in the wilderness. You'll be the one crying out. You'll be the one who goes away from everything and you'll spend time in my presence so that your words literally create revival in Israel again. The mountains will be brought low. The valleys will be raised up. It will become a straight path for the kingdom of God to come into the world. We see that then in Matthew chapter three when Jesus walks that straight road, valleys low, Valleys raised, mountains brought low, and Jesus walks to the river and says, you need to baptize me. And he baptizes Jesus. And then the Bible says that immediately Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. Matthew chapter four chronicles the life of Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days, fasting with no food, praying to his father, and being tempted by Satan himself. The enemy comes to Jesus and says, I've got a better way for you to accomplish what your father told you to accomplish. And so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy three times and puts Satan himself to flight. In the wilderness for 40 days, praying in the presence of his father, In the presence of the angels at the end of it, as they come and give him food and drink at the end of his fast. And then he walks out of the wilderness, calls his disciples to come near to him so that the answers for the world when he leaves, again, we see the calling of God happening again because we are, people are, anointed by God to be God's answer to the world. He calls the 12 to himself and they begin to travel. And the very next thing that you see after he comes out of the wilderness, the next thing that Jesus does is he goes to the mountain, sits down, and preaches the greatest sermon that was ever preached in the history of mankind, the Sermon on the Mount. For 2,000 years, we've been trying to parse that sermon out, understand it, we've made jokes about it because it seems so difficult to even understand. We have read it over and over again. We've taught it, we've preached it, we've studied it, we've meditated on it, we've cried over it, we've wondered how we're gonna do it. It has been influential for two millennia and it emerged out of a moment when Jesus said, I'm going to spend these 40 days in the presence of my Father. The power that is released when we choose to spend those moments and those seasons, fervently praying in his presence is unmatched by anything that the world has to come against us with. You realize that's why verses say, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world? Because when you've spent enough time in God's presence and you have his heart, suddenly what is in you is powerful in a way that the world cannot match. A casual relationship with Jesus where you're just kind of holding hands with him on occasion when you really need a blessing, that is not greater than what the world comes against you with. Can I just tell you, I I don't believe that. But I do believe that as we spend time in the presence of the Lord, marinating in his love and his truth, what happens in those moments is our words become dense and weighty and glorious and powerful which is why in acts chapter 2 the same peter who was called in matthew chapter 4 can now walk into that same into the streets of jerusalem where jesus was carried to be crucified and speak the prophetic word and thousands were saved whereas peter couldn't get anything right before that moment but because he had spent that time with jesus on the shoreline being restored finding repentance being called again. It was the relationship and the time spent with God that created the power of Peter's words, not to mention the 10 days that they spent in prayer leading up to the day of Pentecost. This is the beauty of what we have available to us. This is the calling of Elijah upon us. And I just want you to walk away knowing that nothing shallow will ever be powerful, but there is power in the depths of your relationship with God. Would you stand with me this morning? There's a unique power that can flow through your life when you choose to be what you are, where you are. You will be sustained in the brokenness of this world by knowing that God is never unaware of the brokenness and knowing that God is always calling, calling you and calling others to you. And then third, the effectiveness of the people of God in a world of sin hinges on this truth, that nothing truly powerful is ever shallow. Let me ask you these questions, and, and I'll pray over you. What happens when we move to prayer before we move to opinion? See, what happens before you state your opinions? You said, I'm gonna spend time in prayer. What happens if you pray before you react to things that people are doing to you? What happens if you allow yourself? Isn't that what Paul and Silas did in the Philippian jail? Injustice had taken place. Hey, they didn't do anything to deserve what they got. But in the midnight hour, the Bible says they were singing and praying to God. Those hymns had invited the presence of God into the place of their brokenness and power emerged. What if we pray before we planned? What if before making the plans for your year, What if before making the plans at your workplace? What if you have to create a schedule at work and instead of launching into a spreadsheet, you said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take three or four minutes just this morning, and I'm going to pray. God, direct my steps. God, I want your presence in my heart. God, this is a moment when I want to reveal your glory by doing something that is of excellence and that is of benefit to my company. I want to be the kind of employee that they know is filled with the Spirit of God because I'm doing things and accomplishing things that I couldn't do in myself. What if we just divorced ourselves from the moment of action for a moment and begin to pray first? We allowed the presence of God to saturate us so that what we said and what we decided and what we planned and what we did came out of a place of power, mercy, compassion, and grace. I believe that that changes our lives so greatly that we might not even be able to recognize who we are versus who we were before we started doing it. This is the prophetic calling of Elijah not just to say it's gonna be dry, but to spend that time in prayer in God's presence so that what he spoke would come to pass. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes please.